0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason, joined by my One Piece-loving co-host, Abe Stein, and my My Hero Academia-loving co-host, Spencer Howland. I know I did anime recently, but this time I went a little bit more specific. We got Chopper in the background. I know Chopper now. I know One Piece. I'm full weeb. So we're all ready to go. Who's
1: Chopper, and why is there flesh and blood in the background
0: oh yeah that happened that happened a while ago uh <laughs> <and> then, uh, <laughs> uh chopper is the little reindeer from one piece he's a doctor uh and with the skull and crossbows, anything is possible he's the best well you no know one else is the best every episode of show criticism and this week we have a really exciting one we have special guest kellen pastor on former platinum pro to talk about tier two decks I think y'all are going to really love it. It's exciting. Kellen's super smart, and I can't wait for y'all to hear it. But first, we do need to do Always Improving. That is the main point of the show. And Spencer, the floor is yours.
1: So the first thing that we have to talk about is because we missed a week. And what's even funnier about us missing a week is before we decided to miss the week, I text these two and I was like, hey, guys, Always Improving for this week. Uh, the Jeskai Hanada deck is not as bad as I was saying on the podcast. It's actually really freaking good. It's funny because, like, even even on the podcast, I had been playing against players during the day before the show to prepare for the show, playing the the Pro deck lists, and uh, I was still beating Jeskai Hanada. I was like, "Okay, it's the same old deck. Like, this guy clearly, you know, probably ran hot or something." Not at all. I was playing against day one players. They didn't know how to play the deck yet, and the deck is not a joke. It is quite good. What's even better is that I was memeing on former co-host Matt Kling, who like, a, like two years ago was like, this card's busted, this deck's going to get banned. And uh, I was like, yeah, remember when you said this? And then if you look on the results of the challenges this weekend, and you also see the players that players were playing against, it is probably likely that we will be getting a standard banning. <laughs> and it will be because of this deck. I was going to say this last week before the challenges, but we didn't record and I just wanted to call out that like I was clearly wrong and I apologize if I misled any listeners because it would have been worth it just to have this always improving moment during that missed week. That's my first one. Do you guys have any thoughts on that one? Friend of the show,
2: Kane Reinhardt, I believe tweeted that they made top four of the standard challenge and they played only Hinata Mirrors. So if you want have no idea what's going on in standard what Spencer's talking about, yeah. Did you see today's there, of retweet of that tweet? No. <laughs> uh, was
1: that, oh Je- no, I think I did Jepper Jepper Walkley Walkley also retweeted it. And said so I also it. played against only the owners. But we're
0: not sure how we like the mirror yet. More testing needs to be done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, straight straight up, like you might wonder like how is this noise improving mode? Are you just apologizing to the listener? No, I, I think that like you should challenge your assumptions more than I did. And I just assumed because I was winning that the deck was still missing something. You know, I think that uh, that's not giving enough credit to the person who literally just won a Pro Tour with it, right? Three people played the deck at the entire Pro Tour. One of them won it. So, yeah, I think it's an always improving moment on my part. Uh, and then uh, from the 1K+, as per requested by Mikey on Patreon, uh, he asks, Anything you could improve on this weekend? at 13-H. And I learned a lot uh playing Spirits at the one K plus at our new sponsor, Game Grid. Also, what do you guys think?
0: It's an audio podcast. Spencer's uh, holding up a shirt with the thing. Oh, man. <laughs> you
2: gotta you gotta go. It's a nice G, blue and white, capital G on some hexagons
0: <laughs> all the way through. Mm-hmm. It looks really good. Yeah. Spencer's wearing it very well. I thank yeah, you. it pops thank in the you. background in his walls.
1: Thanks. you. Thank <laughs> you. I, I actually uh am super excited. Um, I'm playing uh, another 1K Plus this weekend at Game Grid. Also, some stuff to come later in the show about this. But I learned a lot. And one of the first things that I learned actually happened right during round one. I had never played the Mono Blue Spirits deck before in Pioneer. This was a Pioneer 1K. I played against Mono Red Prowess round one. And I quickly learned that this deck doesn't really get to play the control role even against Mono Red. It does when you have specifically, like, when you have specific spirit setups where, like, you have multiple lords or specifically multiple of the same lords. It can't be different lords um, because the lords kind of interact with each other in in different ways. It was game three where I just didn't attack on a turn because I thought I'd have an extra turn. And you just don't have extra turns. Like, you don't get the extra turns. If you have damage, you need to use the damage. It's almost like playing kind of like a burn deck to maximize those flyer hits and you still have to like go around and minimize what your opponent can be doing as just as you do any race, but you have to make the decision like where am I getting damage and you have to take it where you can get it. And that was something I had not been prepared for going into the event and it actually did cost me to lose round one. Second, always improving moment had to be too many types of the same board with cyber cards. Uh, this deck really wants to bring in chunks of cards um, uh, My sideboard had lots of two ofs and a one and a couple one ofs that you can have two ofs, but like your cards should be coming in in chunks because you're studying out cards in chunks. It was specifically in the quarterfinal. Well, in the topic that I start was like understanding my deck a lot more. And I started shaving and I realized because I was shaving, I was like, well, why am I shaving? Is there not cards like the right things? To take out? I was like, oh, it's actually because you have. You could board in 15 cards in this matchup because you didn't have a clear enough plan when you built your sideboard. Um, just part of playing a deck, you know, overall the for the first time. But I do think that the deck is a deck that your bad cards are bad in matchups and your good cards are good in matchups. And you just need to take out the bad cards and put in the good ones. And while that sounds simple, you have to build your sideboard that way, too. And then the last one is confidence. This might be a weird, always improvement moment, but like, I mean, not sometimes for the last few years, I've really struggled with self-confidence. It actually came from this podcast and uh, people on the internet saying some not nice things to me. And I got a lot of it back this weekend. I played the best Magic I played in years, if not ever, in the top eight of this tournament. I outplayed my quarters opponent and pulled off some tough games where... It's so funny, too, because like it actually came up during Dreamhack that they were talking about posturing, and I thought about some of the posturing and the conditioning that I was able to do uh, during this top eight, uh, and how it led me to win a match that I think was pretty hard. Goblin Chainroller, by the way, tough card to beat with Spirits, but I was able Get to good. do it... Chainroller. <laughs> 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 but but it, was, it was some of the best matches I played, and then in the semis, I was able to win a game... That literally after the match, even though I lost the match, everybody watching was like, that was impressive. And my opponent was like, yeah, you played better than me. It's funny, because like oftentimes, I, in the history of Magic, would have felt like they were just trying to make me feel better about the loss. But I think that it actually was like, no, I, d- I did actually get to show my skill in this specific situation and navigate the the game into a position that I could win, it really gave me a confidence boost. There was this guy that like won Dreamhack, and he, <laughs> in his uh, closing interview, was talking about what he believed the best deck in Modern was, and he said it with such confidence. And it was... I think that having that belief in yourself and in the thing that you're doing in Magic is really important, and it's something that I personally have felt lacking for a while, and I got a lot of it back this weekend, so... Those would be the answer to your question, Mikey. Abe or Mason, you have anything on that? Go ahead.
0: I I want to talk about this compliment thing real quick because I think a lot of players assume that. And personally, if I say that to my opponent, I mean it. It, It's funny. Round two of this DreamHack, I played against, um, I believe, Caleb. And you had told me you had just started to play competitively and you had played some NRGs and you got some top 16s and you were really excited to grind and stuff. And we played Living In versus Four Color and I beat you. But you played very very well and when we were into the match I I mentioned it and I felt like he kind of felt maybe that I meant it the way you were thinking about it and trying to feel better Nah man if someone compliments you they're taking time out of their day they probably mean it and I meant it so and also we should be complimenting each other more. Magic's hard if if your opponent plays well tell them they played
1: well. I'm the type of person that would also do that. I mean you guys have seen my social media posts about Utah Magic because we're Facebook friends but like I'll straight up just call people out, like, publicly too. I believe in that. Uh, we had a, a player that had impressed me uh, a few months ago, and I was just like, dude, the amount that this guy's improved, like, you just watch him play, and like, here are some things that he's been doing, and, and you can really see it. I'm going to therapy, so, like, don't worry about that. But I don't know why my brain automatically just assumes that, and I was really glad that, I don't know, I got to internalize it this time.
0: Hey, Abo, is your always improving moment.
2: My always improving moment. For uh, the last two weeks, actually, it's been getting my fingers back into modern a lot more. I took a bit of a break to focus on uh, on Eternal TCG for a bit, and really I was kind of very comfortable with where I was. You know, I've been doing this hammer coaching. I need to keep up with things that are popping up in the metagame. We had talked about the blue white affinity deck a bit when we went back to our modern recap episode and our power rankings there, and got a chance to play with Boogeyman Four Color. I really just got a chance to dig into. A lot of what's going on and make sure that I still had a real good grasp on what's going on in the format outside of my own perspective as someone who plays a lot of handbooks. I think that's always really important to do to make sure that even if you're focused on one deck that you're playing, you can learn a lot about the weaknesses of other decks or even the strengths of other decks, get ideas for how to best combat them or play against them, ways to make their plays awkward by playing with them, and so I was able to play uh, like three or four leagues the last couple of weeks of just multiple different decks that I wanted to keep up with as things have changed with uh, with new cards and stuff. So that's been been really good. Uh that four-color deck, pretty messed up,
1: man. <laughs> uh, you ever play that deck, Mason? How, what was your, what uh, was your dude, I book? think he might, he might have gotten a list from like Quentin Pierce. I heard that.
0: Yeah, he definitely didn't message me.
1: I unfortunately <laughs> uh, I will send you a screenshot. It is literally me telling Quentin that I will just play your 75 and that he will hand me that deck.
0: Oh, by 95? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's good. Dang, I'm going to be missing so many cards. (laughs) Yeah, you're
0: going on and your sideboard's going to look really foolish. (laughs) 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 Well, my always improving moment comes from the semifinals of DreamHack uh, Dallas, which I just competed in and spoilers
1: to this story I won. I thought that you said on Twitter we weren't allowed to talk about this.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, we don't talk about it. doesn't mean I can't talk about it. Uh, so, it's a pretty try-and-true classic story, but we're going to go over to here real quick. So, I'm in the top four of Dreamhack. My opponent's playing BTL Scape Shift. I am playing the four-color Money Pile deck I've championed a bunch. Not Risen Reef, it's the controlling version. And my opponent has a very favorite matchup. We both mulligan to four, and that's great for me. A low-resource game is better for me than their combo deck. But my opponent has Resolve scapeshift. Shift. And they're counting their mountains. I know that they don't have enough mountains because it's open deckless. I see ones in the graveyard. It was a trial and recycled. And they scapeshift and do nothing. They put six lands into play, took six lands out of their deck, and passed the turn. I was in a commanding position. I was very easily going to win that game. If you go back and watch it, I was probably like 50, 60% to win easily. And which is great for a match of the terrible. And i opponent having two battle cuts in play. I have redundant Omnath. I have an extra Solitude. I can easily close the game out as long as my opponent does not draw really well. Then my opponent draws a Dryad and I and didn't do the thing I always mention on the podcast, which is double check a ruling with a judge that I'm almost positive I know. Instead, I let my opponent do the thing because they shortcut it verbally and the shortcut verbally is actually beneficial for me the way they're wanting to play it out. So I allow this thing to happen and then my opponent picks up a Valakut, and then plays it a third one, which will do nine damage. And I respond by pitching my Omnath to Solitude, a Dry to the Elysian Grove, which removes the mountain from all the cards. The problem is, is that that trick does not work if your opponent already meets the Valakut requirements, even if you remove the land from being a mountain. Whereas if that was the last mountain, where you didn't have the mountain requirements already met, I would have not taken any damage. So, big judge ruling. I end up losing that game because of this. If I had just done the thing, uh, or asked the judge when the first land entered, and responded to the fetch land, I'm in a much much better spot, and I can probably take over that game. At worst case scenario, I get two draw steps. That was really bad. And I was, I'll say it, really, really mad at myself. I mean, I am in the top uh, for the event. We have not split prizes. There's a lot of money on the line. If I win this match, I'm going to play Jund in the finals. If you watch the coverage, you even sit, watch me say, I believe that this is the finals. My Jun matchup is amazing. I think I will win the tournament and win this. So in a lot of ways, this is the finals. to me, And I have just lost it because I was too dumb and too arrogant to slow down. And that's the always improving moment. You got to slow down, do that. And then also compartmentalize your losses and like your anger and remind yourself, you only have the time you have now to finish playing the game. What looks worse? making that dumb mistake and making it much more because I'm mad at myself, or playing the best I can with the last two games I have. I still have two games to cheese it out. Let's see what I can do. And I think I played really great in game two, and luckily my opponent, I think, made a mulligan error in game three, and I was able to win the match. So that is my always improving.
1: I'm not allowed to talk about Masons. Uh, <laughs> moment. I do have something to say on this. I might cry. By the way for those listeners who don't know I'm like an emotional dude and so I'm might like creating this um I really love it when after what is this four hundred and eleven episodes people might wonder like why do you guys still do the always improving segments so often some of them can be the same thing that's been said and if you've been listening for four hundred and eleven episodes I think you know it's a little less than that for always improving you might have heard the same thing from the same people but multiple times and Mason just reminded me of a story that I I used to refer to back hundreds of episodes ago uh, about a a tournament where I made a really big mistake uh, and went to the bathroom to wash my face. And honestly, I think about times where Michael Hinderocker has told similar stories and you might have like, why do we do this segment every week? Like you guys say it's the point of the podcast, but like, this is our chance to both hold ourselves accountable and give the listeners a chance to hear those things that we're doing either wrong or right and try to apply them because magic's a really hard game it's really cool to see your friends succeed Uh, especially in a moment where they could easily tilt off they could be upset
0: well let's move in to housekeeping. We have a couple things to talk about. First things first, we have a new sponsor for the podcast. We mentioned this, uh, I believe, in the last episode, because of how timing and things work. But uh, Spencer, do you want to talk about Game Grid Lehigh, which you alluded to earlier?
1: Yeah, I'm stoked. We have reached a deal for Game Grid Lehigh to sponsor the entire criticism Network, as well as the criticism Open Series. It's honestly really cool to see the work that Uh, Not just this group has put in, but like the whole network has put in to to do this. Uh, Their faith in us. The deal is something that I don't know about you guys, but like I'm stoked. Like I think that this is a really good partnership. The What they're offering is what we wanted. And if you have not checked out their inventory, it's amazing. If you are local to Utah, you'll hear me talk about them a lot because there'll be a lot of the tournaments that I play in. Um, Lehigh is the second closest store to me. Um, at this point, uh, where I live in Utah and I just think that Jordan, the owner is amazing. The staff is amazing. Uh, when people at the store heard that we were moving over there, they were stoked. I'm stoked. I think that if you get a chance, you can use the link in the show notes. Um, if you do, it actually kicks us back some money. So, you know, when you buy cars, make sure to use that link. So, you know, you can help us out. Um, and there will be discount codes for each individual show across the network moving forward as well, once those are are set up. But it's pretty huge. The next thing to talk about is wristbands. Wristbands, we're supposed to be here today. It looks like they're going to be here tomorrow, which means we'll have a shipment out um, for all patrons of Always Improving Wristbands. They were a huge hit in the past. We're going to continue to do that. And then, uh, as well as, I'll be sending some to Mason and Abe, so that if you see them at events, they can have them available to just hand you. But, uh, you know, we, we try to send twice to four times a year spans out for patrons they finally are are ready to go and we will get those out and then final housekeeping i ordered a trophy today you might have wondered if you why we you know have been holding off on the ccmtg opens it is because behind the scenes i was in conversations with getting those events sponsored rather than really us paying for them to be honest and I, i'm stoked guys like i thought the trophy looked caught. mason where's your trophy i want to see your trophy
0: uh i don't have a trophy
1: it's
0: not yet a trophy? Nah, we're working on it i'm trying to guilt dream hack into it but i what i do have is i have my content creator lanyard which i use to go into the vip section after every round and grab a snack and drinks and nice. just chillax it was so broken also you'll see me in the background i have a lot of jake lucky videos if that's, you're uh in scory sports yes yeah.
1: uh we <laughs> yeah. don't we don't have lanyards for people who are content creators Um, But we will have the event coming out here soon. We are going to only run two this year. It's still quarterly. I'll plan something once we kind of see stuff for kind of the future of it. But what I would love is feedback. Like, what do you want to see from a $10 event series on uh, Arena or MTGO? Do you have preferences? Um, Leave a comment in the YouTube section. I'm excited, guys. I think that, you know, what what we have set up with Gingrid Lehigh for both these events and our sponsorship is going to be pretty awesome. I'm excited to be literally handing trophies, well not literally cuz I'm going to mail it to you. But I'm excited to to mail trophies to people and have them be constructive criticism champions. So
2: Yeah, we'll be doing something DreamHack hasn't been doing. So Oh,
1: better than DreamHack. Better Back than DreamHack. You get
0: a trophy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: blah, blah, blah,
0: blah. All right, I got a question for y'all. Cuz someone brought this up to me. I don't know how I feel on this. So DreamHacks are the new GPs. Am I a GP champ? I would say I'm not. I'm not. I'm not I would say I'm not. That's that's where I stand on this. So if you say you're not, you're not hurting my feelings. How many that's all say, I'm saying. how many
1: players were there? How many were there? It was
0: 240 and it was eight rounds. Yeah, it wow. just wasn't enough. But here, here's my follow-up. Does this bump my ninth place to a GP top eight when we combine them? That's what another person told me. They like, said, if you, "Hey, you, like, you, could, you throw those dance with yeah." The fusion, like, it's like, hey, you got ninth. Did you go undefeated they at your next big tournament?
1: Right. There's a problem <laughs> is that they have to be of equal power level to do the fusion <laughs> dance, right? And the dream hack yeah. one is so much more powerful. I, um, here's that I would say, it may answer your question that this is better than winning a GP.
0: I like where your head's at because here's where I'm at. I'm 23 and one at. High level cash tournaments with Money Pile. I have lost one match that was back at GP Vegas in November. The rest of them I have gone undefeated. Anyways, Money Pile is pretty good. Let's go talk to Kellen though. <laughs> but it is time again to get into our main segment today. We have a really exciting one. We have a special guest to actually talk about it. And this guest is a great friend of Abe. So Abe, I feel like you should do the honors in introducing our guest.
2: Yeah. So here to talk with us about picking the right tier two deck at the right time is uh, my friend Kellen Pastor. He is uh, at The Odd Engineer on Twitter. Uh, he's actually a member of my first PT team, Sweets for Days, uh, way back when. We qualified from the same RPTQ in like the Philly area. And uh, yeah, he's gone on to kind of have a really great career. He was a pro, a uh, plat pro under uh, the system before the MPL. He's kind of always gotten there through his knowledge of timing the metagame playing the right kinds of things at the right time that aren't always just playing the best deck which is what a lot of people usually do so when we had this topic i figured he was the perfect person to
3: bring on thanks for having me guys and uh i hope i can teach some people stuff about uh picking not the best decks that's probably like a pretty good
0: place to kind of start with all this right so why are you so interested in this topic? And what do you mean by tier two decks exactly?
3: My personal framework, when I think about Magic the Gathering is, um, I don't try to think about it in a vacuum. Instead, I try to think about it as like, there's this specific event, or this specific tournament, and I want to do well in this tournament. And you need to think about like, what does doing well mean? And what do I expect everyone else to play? And those two questions are like, a little bit too linked, as I'll explain a little bit later. Um, and when I think about like, what is a tier one deck we're looking at um the decks where you'd be like here's what i expect people to show up with and here's what i'd expect them to what win rate they'd have. And it would be like these are the top decks that i expect to do the best against the expected metagame uh the tier two decks are the decks that you expect to do worse although sometimes a tier two deck might you might actually expect to do better in general here i'm talking about like decks where you'd actually be like when we look against around the metagame, these decks are like a little bit below where I'd expect the best decks to be doing.
0: Well, that's it's really really good because I think you know sometimes people tier two is such like a nebulous term. So I'm glad we're able to kind of set that you know tone what we're talking about because even like you know what I think about it, I think is a little different than yours. But getting into that preference and that lighting, I think is super helpful for this. So let's talk about some of the reasons for this. You know, you kind of told us some of the ideas and things you had earlier about all of this, but. The advantage over opponent and being prepared, is that something that you really value, like having an edge of the opponent and knowing the matchup from your side? And how important do you think that is? Because it's something that does seem like it could potentially be faltered by a stronger opponent.
3: It's actually uh, something that I value a little bit, but you are correct. As you go deeper into a tournament, that sort of edge starts to go away. Um, people are going to know, they're just going to have played more Magic, they're going to have seen more decks, and unless you're picking a deck that like you made and nobody else knows about, somebody else is going to have seen, it. and even if they didn't test against it much, they might know about, like, oh, this is the sort of board plans these decks generally have, or even if they don't know the specific board plan, they might be like, in general, in this format, here are the board cards that are available to this sort of deck, so I know what options my opponent has to bring in. And you might have a cyborg plan that like trumps that, but they're not going in blind, they're not doing anything Particularly off balance, but in the earlier rounds of the tournament, which when you're going for a tier two deck are sort of like the make or break rounds uh, for reasons and That's sort of like a big thing about picking tier two decks is the early rounds are a little messy usually Those rounds you do have bigger edge because in general um, If you're practicing and playing a lot you're going to be more prepared than the average opponent that shows up to a tournament different people have different reasons for coming to tournaments and Pretty much all of them are good reasons. And I think a lot of them are just like, they want to go out, have fun, play their deck, right? So they might not have put a ton of time to think about, like, oh, here's every single matchup and stuff like that. They're just sort of like, I have fun playing this modern deck. It might be a good modern deck. It might be like their pet deck that they own, whatever. And they just didn't put in the time. And they might not know about, like, how do things line up? And you can get a little bit of an edge there. They go like, oh, I just sideboarded in these cards. And you're sort of like, oh, no, they're complete blanks against me. So you're just down three cards. When anyone does that, it tends to be a huge edge, as sure as like, we've all done that, right? You take a sideboard plan, like you bring in graveyard hate, and your opponent just completely deeks it, and it doesn't do anything. And all of a sudden, you're sort of like, oh, I lost the game because I was just down two cards on warding, because I drew two graveyard hate pieces. They didn't do anything, and I lost the game. So that definitely can come up, but you're correct. Um, As you get deeper into a tournament, the less and less relevant that is.
0: I feel like you really covered that one well and i kind of agree and i think we all kind of do a lot of head shaking going on there i really want to talk about targeting the winner's meta because i think this is something that players not only love to do is one of the harder things to do in magic um successfully and it is such an important part of this so can we kind of dive into that target the topic of targeting the winner's meta and what exactly you mean and how we go about this
3: there's a general meta game but as we keep on playing throughout the tournament the win rates of the decks that make up the metagame are not all going to be identical. And because of this, what we actually see at the XO table is going to start to diverge from what we see at the uh, XX table and the OX table. At the XO table, you'd be like, oh, here are the decks that had the highest overall win percentage in the metagame, right? They're going to get the most wins in general. Not exactly, but in general. And then at the bottom, you'd be like, oh, these are the decks that I would expect to do the least well against all the other tournament decks. These metas are different, and sometimes it can be like over the course of a long tournament, substantially different. I know that you just won Dallas, Mason. You can probably test that the decks that you saw around you in round one were different than the decks that you saw around you in the last couple rounds, correct? No, very true. Yes. And they probably were correlated with how well they actually lined up against the metagame, right?
0: Yes, very much so. Mill made a really deep run, and there were a lot of decks in that format, in that tournament, that were really bad against Mill. So it's yeah. a, a great example of that.
3: Yes. And Mill's actually like um, a good example of this sort of thing that I'm talking about. Winning against the winner's metagame. Mill in general is a little slow and can line up poorly against uh, a couple popular decks in the metagame, right? You've got the Surgical Extraction, so it could be pretty good against like Living End, right? You can be like, oh, I mill you into your Living End, exile all of that, and then I win. Uh, Four-color doesn't apply a lot of pressure, even though there's 80 cards, I find that I actually really like how Mill lines up against Four Color just because, like, you get the time, you can set up everything you want. They're ignoring a lot of the interactive pieces that Four Color has because, like, yeah, it has the crabs, but you need to kill the crabs right away. And they usually get a little bit of Mill in. And so you can win some of those longer games. But if you're playing, like, Mill against Burn, or if you're playing Mill against uh, Mill, is a deck I don't play very much, but there's a lot of decks where you'll just lose because you're a little bit weaker than your opponent. You're likely to lose. So you might be like, overall, I don't think Mill does very well in the metagame. But then you go, like, oh, I'm just going to imagine I started XO and like I'm deep into the tournament. You might be like, wait a minute. I actually like how I play against a lot of these decks that have been winning. And I think that I'm favored at this point. That's the sort of example where like Mills, if you start off winning, you can end up keep on winning. But if you start off losing, you're going to keep on losing. And that's something where there's actually two things that go into a decks like, um, Win percentage and one of them is usually ignored and that is your overall win percentage and your variance and the variance sort of like reflects how you do against the winning decks versus the losing decks if you lose to the winning decks and beat the losing decks you have a low variance would expect normally like an xx record right you'd always go four four because whenever you get a win you're likely to lose whenever you get a loss you're likely to win a high variance deck since you win against the winners and lose against the losers, you expect to be more likely to go XO and OX comparatively and not as likely to go XX because there's like a feedback whenever you win and so on like that. And when you're looking at doing well in a tournament, um, you need to look at like what sort of records are acceptable to you. For stuff like the MPL weekends they had, every win mattered. So they're a high variance deck that had a lower win rate, not a good choice because like going 4-4 was a good record you got like half of your wins, you're pretty happy with that. When you're at a tournament where it's a cut to top eight, most of the prizes are in the top eight, you don't really care about being ninth. You only care about getting that top eight. So if you go 3 drop, not a big deal, as long as you're getting the highest chance of actually making to the top eight cut. So it's okay to pick decks that are like, higher variance tier two decks, where you need to get a little bit lucky at the start in order to get to the matchups you want, um, because they're actually relatively more likely to spike a tournament then the overall best deck that starts to face its worst matchups potentially as you go deeper and deeper into the tournament, because it already beat all of its best.
2: I'm thinking about this, and this is something that sounds great. I feel like Winter's metagames get talked about a lot, like Mason said, is something that a lot of people try to target when they're maybe tuning their deck. But do you find that, you know, let's say you're someone who's looking to play their first RCQ as opposed to, you know, maybe going to your first dream hack. Would you say that you would be more or less averse to the idea of playing one of these You know, off the beaten path decks versus playing something more conventional, more stock, because of the length of the tournament being different, because you're going to play against a smaller field or a larger field. Is there a timing thing where you think you want it to be? You want to go one way or the other? Like where where you'd say, even though I like doing this, I would probably, if I wanted to win, choose a more
3: stock deck because it's it's one of these other events. First off, in general, you're correct that for the smaller tournaments the sort of winner's metagame is less and less likely to be that different from the normal metagame, just because like, if you're playing a 30-person tournament, one person switching decks actually changes the meta, like what, 3%? And so that's a pretty big change off of just one person. And so trying to target like the winner's metagame is more like trying to just be aware of what people have. And in general, it's going to favor playing just the best deck overall, Uh, playing a Tier 2 deck. A lot of the advantages I talk about get diminished, except if you're talking about, like, I actually need to win the tournament. If you're playing a tournament like that and it's 30 people and you're sort of like, oh, I want to top eight, you should be playing the best decks. You're sort of like, I'm playing this tournament and I want to get first place. Then you can start talking about maybe looking at, like, what do I think the best players in the room are going to be playing? And what do I think I can play to beat them? And that can change from place to place. If you feel like you're the best player in the room, then maybe you're like, the mirror is skill intensive i think i can win the mirror then i'd be like yeah you should be playing the best deck you're sort of like uh i'm busy i can't put in the sort of time to figure out all the nuances of the mirror and i'm like maybe you should be playing something that isn't the mirror so your opponent doesn't have that skill edge over you because you didn't have the time to invest and you can instead take advantage of a better matchup overall even if you're less likely to make top eight it's worth it to have the edge against the like more practiced player once you actually get to top eight
1: I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so I actually want to go back to you because I had a question during the advantage over opponents. So we can go back there really quick. I want to ask you a little bit about kind of targeting the winner's meta and things like that. Uh, I got the chance to look up some of the things that, you know, that you've done. Uh, we have we might even have you playing behind me. We do. I was pretty interested to, to kind of see, you know, your Boggle's GP, your... You know, just kind of the the decks that if if you look you up. And personally, like I'm somebody that really does this a lot. For me, it's been not just myself, but like helping others uh, along the way. And like when they didn't want to play the best deck, they would come to me and ask me like, "What are my options?" And I'm kind of curious how you target a metagame for an event that you're not in when when somebody asks you those kind of questions because it sounds like that has been a role from what Abe was saying that you've played for other people as well. And then my second question would be, do you ignore certain parts of the metagame by doing this? And is that a purposeful decision?
3: So on the first part, uh, my personal way of going through this is, um, I I mostly do this for online events. Um, So online events, is a little bit easier to figure out what the expected meta is because you have a long history of uh, events going back. So I look at those, and there's a lot of people on Twitter who will post like uh, win rates in recent events. So I can go back through the last couple months quickly, just be like, all right, what's actually winning the most? What's getting played the most? And look at that, and then just be like, okay. Oftentimes, even though their overall win rates are good, their individual matchup win rates are usually too small to draw a lot of information out of. And the overall win rates, like you have to be looking at like more than one event, actually. So you have to take a big grain of salt. I'm mostly looking for, like, uh, what decks have been recently doing well, because people tend to copy the recent uh, decks that do well and the overall med So I look at that, and I go, like, okay, based on this, what do I think the most popular deck is going to be? Do I think that deck's actually good? Usually it is, for a lot of times, like, four-color in Modern or over in Legacy. It is the best deck. It wins a lot. You can expect it to be the best deck in an event going forward, for example. Um, but then the decks around it shift from time to time. So... I go look and be like, okay, how are those decks sideboarding right now? A lot of people just copy the sideboard of the most recent event and just go with that. And so you can look at like, what matchups are they prepared for? um, What matchups are they not? In both formats, Modern and Legacy, there are just too many strategies to be able to build an effective sideboard for every deck that can be in the metagame. Uh, So they have to pick and choose what matchups they want to do well against. And so you go like, all right, what are their current holes? what decks out of those current holes line up the best against the most popular decks that aren't those like best decks. And then you recommend from there and sort of hope that like it ends up being correct. And then you're sorry. I need to be reminded on the second part.
1: Specifically, do you get to, do you get to, and do you purposefully ignore sections of the metagame?
3: Yes. There's certainly a lot of tier two decks that I'm sure that, uh all of you guys know, amongst the like uh, Grinder crowd who play a lot of tournaments, they want to play decks that they they often say they have agency in every matchup, right? Decks where they can be like, I have a plan, I might not be favored, but I can do stuff, interact with my opponent, and I can beat them a decent amount of the time, right? Even if decent's like 40%. And it's sort of like, if I'm good enough, maybe I can push up 50% against a particular opponent. If you look at what I do, I often pick decks where I don't have that choice. You mentioned that i played boggles if my opponents were sort of like i'm going to be playing a ton of liliana the Veil, i'm going to have answers to your ley line of sanctities i'm just playing like a stocked jun deck i'm not going to do very well uh, my opponent is going to be able to answer my boggles and i'm probably going to die if people are sort of like i decided to register four engineered explosives in my deck and i also have some enchantment destruction so i can answer your stony silence i'm probably going to lose to them as well which is in fact What happened in the top four of the tournament wasn't four Engineered Explosives, but Teleria West and two Engineered Explosives is quite enough to be able to consistently answer Stony Silence. So yeah, that's something when you're looking at these Tier 2 decks, a lot of times they do have really bad matchups in the metagame. And if those really bad matchups are very popular, you probably shouldn't be picking that particular deck for the tournament. And that's what I mean by like, you kind of need to get lucky in the early rounds. Those decks, you might be like, they're somewhat popular, but I don't think they actually do very well overall. So you might be like, okay, I'm willing to lose to them. I'm just going to hope that I don't get paired. And if you do get paired, yeah, I lose. But that's a risk that I knew coming into the tournament. Having the skill to be able to pick decks overall is a real magic skill. And it's one that a lot of players like don't consider real. They mostly consider like, oh, I only consider once I start playing the game of magic to be my skill. And so like, if I decided to lose win rate before the tournament, I'm not considering that once I'm actually in it. But it is something that... You are making decisions. And like, if I decided to pick a deck that, like, imagine there's two decks, and it's like, oh, I'm 70% against one and like 35% against the other. I get paired mostly against the 35%, and you picked a deck that's 50% against both. I'm better overall, assuming that they're equally split, right? Because I win like 105% averaged, and you're 100%, but if I get paired against 35%, I'm not going to win, but I still made the better choice overall. And you just have to be willing to like lose. And I think that's something that, like, A lot of, even when you're playing the best decks, there's going to be some decks, like the ones that I like to pick, that aren't going to be good matchups. And you just kind of have to be like, yeah, I can't beat everything. I'm willing to lose to it as long as I'm making my deck to be as well-equipped as possible for what I actually expect to face uh, on average. Even if that means some matchups are really bad, it's okay. If you're sort of like, here's a sideboard slot, I can get 10% extra win rate in a good matchup or 3% extra winning rate in a bad matchup, you should actually be making your good matchup better because that matters more than getting that little bit of extra equity against your bad matchup. So that's my general answer to the question.
0: I would love to talk about this real quick here about accepting the the loss before moving on with the tier two stuff. It, do you find, and this is maybe like something I've, I've observed that a lot of players have a hard time uh, accepting that, you know, I'm going to be playing a deck that has these sort of, High variance matchups or matchups I can't win, you know, like I play this deck and I just can't beat Tron or I can't beat Burn. What would you say to them? And how's that something that you kind of deal with as someone, you know, like he mentioned, you know, you hit the Platinum Pro status, which was the highest echelon, you know, of the game at the time. And, you know, that's something where, and you did it while doing these sort of things. And there was a lot on the stakes, you know, for players who weren't around back then. The difference between hitting platinum and gold was like a significant amount of money and benefits and things. So how do you kind of deal with that? And what would you say to people who kind of have issue with stuff like that?
3: One thing I can actually bring up is I actually played at a PT, a burn deck. And this was the Hogak PT. And I registered no graveyard hate because I believed that I could beat the Hogak matchup without any burn without any graveyard hate in my burn deck. And it turned out for that tournament, I was correct. I went undefeated against Hogak. I wasn't actually correct. I got a little lucky, but against Hogak, I was fine. But I also knew some people still like to play Dredge. And I knew against Dredge, I was 0%. I had no graveyard hate. They could get the creeping chills online faster than I could actually get them down to zero. And I was likely to lose. And in fact, at PT Hogak, I faced against Dredge. And like, this was open deck lists, saw the deck list, and I was like, oh, she's playing Dredge. I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to lose. I was like considering just signing the matchlip then. But I decided that was that's probably a little mean. So like I played, and you just gotta remember that, like, this is what I signed up for. My opponent. She played a completely reasonable deck that I knew existed, and I knew it would beat me. And so like I had to be okay with that. So sort of like, uh, ah, I wish I could have won, but what can you do? And so you just gotta be like positive. You can't take it out on the opponent. You gotta remember, like, they made a completely valid deck choice. They're allowed to play it. I didn't test Dredge, but it didn't seem like a crazy choice to me in general. I know like Hogak Dredge in particular did pretty well that PT. And so you just gotta be like, yeah, I lost. You can't get tilted over it. You can't take it out on your opponent. You just gotta be like, this is what I signed up for. You need to get lucky in order to win Magic tournaments and sometimes luck is pairings. You gotta live with it. You gotta be okay with knowing that like, I'm going to lose games of Magic It's not the end of the world. You can play it another time. You might win even if you get a bad matchup. It's mostly about being prepared mentally to be okay with it. Uh, That's the big thing, personally. Awesome. Well, thank you
0: so much for that that little excursion. I I think that's something that uh, is super important. It doesn't get talked about enough. So it was great to have that little mini moment there. I wonder what this one right here, because this one, I, I'm really surprised to when I first read this to Saw. And I'm very excited to hear your thoughts, uh, assuming everyone else doesn't have any questions on that last front. And that is one of the things that you've highlighted about the Tier 2 decks is less mirrors uh, as a big strength of certain things. So I'd love to hear mm. all about that.
3: Not a big strength. Less mirrors is more fun for me. This- <laughs> sure. That's not something that goes into consideration in terms of, like, am I going to win this tournament? That's something that goes into consideration for, am I going to have fun at this tournament? I know this isn't true for every Magic player, but it is true for some Magic players. There's some of us that are, like, we don't find mirror matches particularly interesting. We like seeing different cards interact with each other. And if both people on either side of the table have the same cards, it just feels less interesting. This isn't, like, some truth. This is just a personal opinion I have. And so for me, Magic's more fun when I play one deck against a different deck. And so if I'm sort of like, not every tournament I play, my number one consideration isn't always winning. Like I said, there's many reasons to play a Magic Tournament. For a lot of them, for me, it's I want to have fun. And so, yeah, I want to avoid mirrors in order to have more fun. It's not always going to be that way. I had to register decks where I had to play many mirrors. PT Oko. I registered an Oko deck. I looked at a lot of the Tier 2 decks, and I decided, nope they're all much worse than oko. So, I registered oko. I played like six mirrors uh, over the course of the weekend. I went like 5-1 and that wasn't bad. So like, you know, went well, but playing the mirrors not the most fun thing in the world, but like in that tournament, I wasn't prioritizing me having fun. I was prioritizing me winning. And so I decided to play a deck that everyone else was playing because it was the best deck.
0: I I love that so much. Prioritizing what matters for you and your goals, I think it's super important. And I'm going to throw it to you real quick here, Spencer. But I have another story along those lines where uh, around the time when KCI was at its best, Sam Pardee showed up to a GP. This is when Sam Pardee and Matt Nass and them were crushing everybody with KCI. And Pardee played Spirits, and they did an interview with him at a GP, which they used to do coverage of GPs back in the day, Zoomers. And they talked to him and they said – uh, Look, we'll, we'll talk about you and me off camera. We'll, we'll have a one on one, pal. That's a talk that an adult has with a kid eventually. And they interviewed him and they said, well, Why are you playing Spirits? You know, everyone's KCI. And he said, I really just wanted to play Spirits. It was a lot of fun. And so he played Spirits, you know. And Spirits was also a good deck and had some good matches, but he just loved it. Spencer, what did you want to say about that?
1: I was just going to say, This speaks to me. You know, if you're watching the video behind me, I've got a two state champion playmats, a Pro Tour and a Pro Tour playmat. And for one of these state champion playmats, I played Jund before it was good. I eventually switched off of Jund in that format because the became the best deck. I didn't want to play Mirrors. Uh, we've got a state champion that I played our team Pro Tour deck the same day as the Pro Tour. Uh, it was Teamer Marvel. Turns out that that deck got banned, but also I switched off of Teamer Marvel. Uh, I literally didn't play it at the 1K the next weekend. People were like, didn't you just win states with this? And it's the best deck. And I was like, yeah. And then the other one I qualified with Teamer. Uh, my own brew, and I don't like mirror matches. I think it's why some of my least favorite formats are, like, very specific formats. There are mirrors that I enjoy, but I, what you said really spoke to me, like, I think about green-white tokens as a format that I just hated. And one of the reasons that I really hated it is, one, I didn't enjoy the green-white tokens mirror, and two, I didn't think that the tier 2 decks outside of ramp were very good. Which is fine for me, but, like, it just means that because of the card dramoka's command... I just have to accept that I'm going to lose moments where they have good remote command draws. But it, it it's funny. Cause like I have been made fun of for literally switching off of a deck that I was championing to be the best deck. It becomes the best deck. And then I'm like, I don't want to play this anymore. <laughs> so I don't know. That really spoke to me.
3: Not sure if this is correct, Spencer, but I suspect the reason why you have all those playmats there is because you kept on finding ways to make magic engaging for you, which allowed you to play better as part of it, right? If you're not engaged with oh, the yeah, game, abso- you well.
1: I think that, you know, you, you mentioned talking about like having fun, right? And I'll use the that format we were just talking about, the, the green-white format. Uh, you know, I was taking a magic break a lot during that time. Part of it was because of the format, but, you know, my teammate knew that I had been working on a deck and was like, you know, what can I play? And I gave him a Dramokas Command ramp deck, you know, he knew that I'd been working on and he was able to qualify for the Pro Tour with that and, because when i was playing magic i was doing what you said i was trying to have fun work on my stuff and it allowed it allowed my friends to push forward and i think that if you can't stay engaged you're probably not going to play your best magic
0: yeah are there any questions that everyone has for kellen here about the tier two thing abe is there anything you wanted to ask before i kind of fire off this last one here i just wanted to you know, give everyone kind of a chance to ask Kellen a question about the tier two stuff. And I know there's a lot more to everything that involves in the kind of the highlights here and Kellen, if there's anything you want to mention that we haven't spoken about here before we kind of close on wrapping up.
1: You'd mentioned something that I, I was curious about, about the, the later rounds, not getting that advantage as somebody who likes to brew their own decks um, quite a bit. I remember playing uh, a four color deck, like a disciple of Bolas, Jedi Jun style deck one time and people just had no idea what I was doing and I know that uh, at least from what Abe had said to me that you also have brewed your own decks in the past and I'm kind of curious if you feel like that comment that you made stays true with brews like at the later rounds do you find that your brews fall apart just as much as your your tier 2 picks or do you find that that actually keeps the staying power when you hit it right?
3: I do brew a little bit some of the, I find brews usually are the best when you're playing something like standard, where there's like the best decks usually aren't as good relatively, and there's a lot more room to play around. And I haven't been playing a ton of standard recently. But it does fall off less, I found, but it does fall off. Again, uh, the later round opponents, they might not know exactly what you're up to, but they tend to have deep format knowledge in order to go that far. And so they'll just be able to think about, like, okay, what are the possible options this person could be having? I'll find that, like, the better your opponent is, a lot of times if you're playing something weird, they'll be able to figure out the cards in your deck just based on the cards you played earlier. Because they'll just be like, oh, this is what would make sense if you are playing this card. And so they'll be able to connect the dots, and they'll be able to prepare for stuff, even if, like, they've never seen the deck before. They'll just know, like, oh, this should lead to this. And sometimes you'll get them. They won't always be perfect. But it does go off a little bit, but not as much. Um, just like while decks give you a certain like chance against every deck in the field, player skill matters. The better players do tend to do better, right? And as you go later in the tournament, just like those tiny edges will tend to get harder and harder to gain because your opponents will be playing, on average, better and better. Um, but you'll still have an edge with the brew. The big question is like. Is your brew where you need those edges to win and that's where you got most of your equity? And like for a smaller torment did somebody see you playing earlier because they like had finished early and they just decided to urge your match for a little bit and then you really don't have much of an edge at all. Or is your like you're on a brew, but your brew's very good and you're sort of like, Oh, I'm not actually playing a lower power level deck than everyone else. I'm just playing a deck that they don't know about. And in those cases, like you want to play the brew every time, I think. Um, but in the cases where you really need the edge, it's like a, it's a little bit tougher. When you need those edges from your opponents not being familiar in order to like get the wins, I usually think you should stay away from those decks. It's good to be getting wins because of the way that your deck interacts with opponents' decks. Hoping to get wins because your opponents don't know how to interact with your deck—that's a lot riskier.
0: So you don't advocate Yawgmoth in Modern? <laughs> um, at this
3: moment, I would not advocate playing any deck that I did not feel crushes for Color. Um, and I believe that Yawgmoth, as a creature-based deck that is very weak to Fury, is one of those decks. I haven't played Yawgmoth. I might be incorrect. That's just my general inclination.
0: I have to agree in case the listener out there is going. It is not good. You do not want to be on the, uh, on the Yawgmoth side of things. Having played a bunch from both sides, so
3: I also feel very similarly about playing Murktide, mm-hmm. and Murktide's kind of like the thorn in my side, where like every deck that I want to play loses to Murktide, but I know Murktide loses to blue red. So like if I register them, I'm basically open. Like hope all of the Murktide players lose before uh, I have to face them, um, and then I can get to the sweet sweet four color. Yeah, so on that.
2: yeah. Um, it's actually on the topic of brewing when you sit down and you're like looking for an angle of attack maybe in a format you're just talking just now about how if you're trying to play something in modern you need to play something that will beat specifically four color but that murktite is the thorn on your side is that like like where do you go to build upwards once you've like decided that where is it that you look to try to find those kinds of strategies is it always to just look back at the other things going on in the format i've seen you play it in prelims the red green like lands i think it's like red green saga deck that you've been playing
3: so I've been playing prelims with red, green, midrange, which is not very good against four-color, but uh, is actually <laughs> okay against blue red Merc Tide. And I also play a lot of uh, just straight red-green, uh, which is very good against four-color, but not very good against Merc Tide.
2: And And both of those kind of line up with what you're saying about how when you're going to play something that isn't the best deck, if you're going to really choose to target something, you're choosing hard to target it, right? Like you're saying... Probably by playing, you know, red green mid range. That like I'm going to beat up all the Merktide players today, and maybe lose to the four color players. But when you play Scapeshift, you're like, maybe I'm just going to lose to like a Blood Moon out of Merktide and some counter spells. But I'll beat every four color players. That is that a reasonable thing to say? Yeah,
3: four color is good enough where I don't have a 100 win rate. That's uh, potents might have 100 percent win rate against me. I, you never get a 100 win rate against the best decks, even when you pick out a deck that's like.
1: Kaylen, hey, I, I need you to stop. I have, I have a 1K this weekend. And I'm going to play this four-color Quentin Pierce deck that Mason Clark won a dream hack with. But now all I want to do is go buy Escape Shift and wreck people. So I need you to, to slow your roll.
3: Sure. Uh, if you're playing a 1K, just play the best deck, usually. Because um, a lot of times those split in the top eight or top four. And so you just want to get the highest chance of actually getting there. And the highest chance is almost certainly going to be. Four color but Actually, in the team prelims
2: team no splits in the prelims yeah. it's between you goldfish and god you can play whatever you want spencer
3: yeah yeah and prelims like you want to get the four L, and if you're going to get the four you're going to have to be four color so you should pick a deck that beats four color and yeah that's generally like sometimes you're doing it with the brew that takes a lot of time though and i generally don't do that i I'll do it a little bit in legacy because legacy moves slowly enough where I have the time to like play something over like a long longer period and figure stuff out. Um, I do it a little bit in modern. That red green midrange deck, similar to a lot of other decks, is not like completely unique, but my take on it's a little different than what I've been mostly seeing. With like, I was playing four fable and utopia sprawl, and I was trying to like Bo-Sage-U. I have like three bo in my main deck because I think bo is like a pretty broken card once you have four ren in your deck, but when I'm actually just looking at picking decks, um, I generally look at the decks that people already are playing, even if they're not very popular, even if they haven't been like doing particularly well recently, uh, and looking for decks that match up with what are the like weaknesses of the actual best decks. So with 4-Color, what is 4-Color really good at doing? It's very good at interacting with creatures. It has a lot of explosive terms with the Omnath, so it's good at catching up and like creating a large board presence out of nowhere. It's good at, like, grinding, right? It's got Ren and Six as a repeatable card engine. It's got Yorion. So looking at all that stuff, it's sort of like, well, I can't really like beat it with effective cards by getting to the board earlier than them because Omnath's going to make it so that unless like I turn off Omnath, they're going to be able to deploy more threats than I can. Uh, I can't really like try to just beat it card for card because they're going to have the Ren engine, they're going to have Yorion, and they're just going to beat me eventually on average. And just have more cards than I do, especially with the mana advantage from Amouth, which like that plays into both. And then trying to go under them is difficult because they run so much cheap interaction, right? Solitude's free, they have prismatic ending, they have bolt. Even like Renin Six, the downtick is a big hindrance for playing a lot of decks where like you have to be playing X1s and it's just sort of like up. Oh, Their two mana card advantage, Planeswalker also answered my one drop, and now I'm like super far behind and like it's turn two. And it feels impossible. So looking at all those weaknesses, even a lot of the popular four-color decks are just elementals. They don't interact well on the stack. And even the ones that do interact with the stack, the normal four-color, more controlling builds, uh, they only run four counterspell in an 80-card deck. That's something that you can build around to beat, because even though one of the things that uh, four-color doesn't do well is apply pressure. So then I'm looking for a set of decks that are like potentially a little, but not completely weak to counter magic. Generally, aren't committing creatures to the board and generally like can deal with the massive explosion of mana. Like, it ignores a lot of the threats that are deployed by four color. The first level are decks like the Valkyrie deck that I like to play or Tron. Uh, decks are sort of like, yeah, we have Veil of Summer on the sideboard, so we can beat some counter magic. They have the Teferi, but the Teferi is a little awkward because, like, you're tapping out for a Teferi and, like, Balak is a little slower, but, like, with Tron, it's a little scary to be, like, oh, am I really going to be depending on Teferi against the deck that I might just be playing a Karn if I tap out? It's still a lot of cards to grind through, but the cards that you're casting either win the game on the spot with, like, a Primeval Titan or Escape Shift or generate a huge amount of card advantage in the case of Tron with, like, Ugin and uh, threats like that, where it's sort of like, oh, I'm, like, only able to outgrind because I'm casting, like, These super expensive spells that like do a million things in order to beat four color. Things that aren't so great against four color, like I'm just playing a lot of value creatures. Like, well, they're playing a lot of value creatures and making more mana. That's the sort of stuff you want to avoid. You want to go like way over the top, or burn's actually not a bad option because again, you're ignoring a lot of the interaction by just burn spells to the face. Although Omnath makes that a little difficult because there's like, once I get Omnath land drop pass, it's like, okay, I lost the game. But you can beat them before that a lot, and they take a lot of damage off their Well,
0: I I love that we went on that little excursion. I think that was a great example that a lot of listeners will understand and be able to apply everything Kellen kind of said. That's a good thought process and mythology to go through for, you know, modern or any of the formats you look at, you know, like Esper Midrange and Standard, uh, you know, the Prowess decks or the Red Black decks, depending on what you believe right now in Pioneer, et cetera, et cetera. Kellen, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this. I think it was great. I had a great time listening to you. Is there anything you want to say or anything that you wanted to cover that you didn't get a chance to before we head on out?
3: I think I mostly talked about uh, what I wanted to talk about. I think, personally, if the viewers were going to take one thing away from what I was talking about, and it was sort of like in the background, I think it's important in terms of being successful as a Magic player is to have the right attitude, make sure that you're – Doing what you actually enjoy when you go to a magic tournament, or else you're not going to be able to do it for very long. And make sure you have, uh, particularly, the right attitude about losing. That like your opponent came there to win as well. They have just as much right to win as you do. And so like when you lose, you don't have to shake their hand, but like you like acknowledge that they won. They like got it fair and square. And that like all you can do is move on to the next round.
0: Thank you so much, Kellen, for taking the time out of your night to come and talk. Come and talk to our listeners about this. I swear I can say it. Uh, it was great to have you on, and I uh, I love this topic. And I hope it was as helpful as I expected to be for a bunch of our listeners.
1: Yeah, Kellen, you are a person after my own heart. I really enjoyed having you on, so thank you. It's great. It's always to a, hear a pleasure, Kellen. Yeah.
0: All right, I Thanos snapped, Kellen. He's no longer here. What a great time we had. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, I, I love Kellen.
2: He's definitely one of the people who I was most grateful to meet when I first started uh, being able to see the broader world of magic. And, um, yeah, he's someone who I, I and many others know learned a lot from, so hopefully that was great for everyone.
1: I loved that. He reminded me of, like, we talked about fusion dances earlier. It's almost like John Stern and Spencer Hallen did a fusion dance, and I'm all about that. Like, that sounds like a great human.
0: You know what else is great? Supporting the show, which you can do by going to patreon.com/slash ccmtg. And you get a cool little benefit of that. You know, you access the Discord, see deck lists, things like that, conversations with the community, all really cool. It's gonna help with the uh tournaments as well. If you know if you're a certain level, you're gonna get for free. We also get to ask questions like this one, which is how do you practice to not get too inbred? This one was actually asked to me in person today, and I thought it was a really interesting question. I had to kind of stop and think about it. Because I started to answer, I was like, well, I guess that doesn't quite answer your question. So I'm going to tell you all what I told them, and I'm curious to hear what your response is. And that is to check with other groups. A lot of times practicing, especially for me, these days for formats like modern that I have uh, a deep knowledge in and haven't changed a whole lot in a long time involves a lot more talking and a lot less playing. So we'll have sort of theories and ideas that I come up with in certain groups, and then I'll run them by other groups. So, a great example of this is I played a Veil vale of Summer. I'm sorry, I had a three Veil vale of Summers in my money pile list, but uh, my friend Jesse suggested maybe having a Fluster Storm instead of the third Veil vale to help bring in against Merc Tide, because the one Veil vale you bring in against Merc doesn't really do a whole lot. Fluster does a lot for winning Counter Wars the same, but you can hit an Expressive Iteration, which is sometimes a key card or the card they're trying to use off the Expressive to clear the way. And so I ran that by a couple people and I had conversations left leading up to the event. And they are like, oh, that seems reasonable enough. And so I decided to make that decision for DreamHack, which is how I ended up with one storm that Abe loved to poke fun at before the show started. And uh, that's kind of it, is making sure the logic checks out with other people. And that's mine. Spencer, so what about you?
1: Oh, man, I have so many thoughts on everything you just said. Shame on Abe for uh, shaming a fun of. I think that that is mistaken. I think that you should respect your friends and understand that they probably had a reason and ask them their reason. And if you don't respect uh, a real reason, friend,
0: makes fun of them first.
1: Well, hold on. If you don't respect their reason, <laughs> shut up. If you do respect it, then make fun of them. I'm just Can I
0: kidding. tell a story from Dreamhack real quick about that? By the way, sure. Hold your thought. Hold your thought. If you watch Ox coverage, you see me play against Amulet Titan, and you see a a person Chalice, check me. And you see me point to it and point to them, and it's someone who uh, listens to the show and stuff. And I had a great time playing against Noah. It was super fun. And we were joking the whole time about how we we're becoming friends. And I said, that's how I know we're real friends because real friends chalice check each other. And if I was the content creator guy, you never cast that pack against because you're too scared I can't see you on Twitter. And so <laughs> I, I love the, yeah, dunk on your friends sometimes. But back to you, Spencer.
1: I liked your answer to this a lot. It was, it's pretty close to my answer. There, I have a few things. I somehow have ended up with kind of a, a group of playtesting partners again, and it's my old group. It's it's me, Matt, and Quentin, and we, we get to talk about magic again. And one of the things that I think that led us to success in the past and that will lead us to success in the future is uh, being able to... I like what you said about pitching it to different groups, but I also think that coming to different conclusions is okay. And I think that being able to recognize that the conclusion that one person comes to isn't right or wrong but it is as long as you're working off of the same basis and you agree with the same basis of information then you stop inbreeding right there because too often people think they need to come to a consensus that's not true that's not even how magic works now that can happen right i think i think that a lot of people attribute this for what it's worth to team channel fireball i think that what is true that people don't realize is that you are not going to break the format for 32 people. You're not going to break it for 28 people. And if you do good on you, but you will know it, it will then be consensus. If you don't have consensus, that's still okay. And also if you're testing for a pro tour and that's different than what we're talking about, the inbreeding is just going to happen in pro tour testing. I have tested for I don't know, thirteen, fourteen Pro Tours now, maybe more than that. Inbreeding in- just happens, like especially when ter- formats turn over. the The question becomes like, are you working off the same assumptions? Because at at the end of the day, that is what's going to be important.
2: Yeah, I would say my number one thing is to always make sure that whatever you're testing with someone else you know, in your future play group testing, you want to make sure that your results are not becoming inbred and and you're not just like metagame against each other a bunch is to divorce yourself from the results of the games you're playing and make sure that what you're focusing on is the things that are happening in the game that are defining things. Because the number one thing that I'll see uh, and that I've seen in the past, my own experience is like, I'll play a matchup from one side, I understand the matchup really well, the other person doesn't understand it as well, you know, I'm kind of explaining what I'm doing and then we'll, but I'll win a bunch of the games be like, well, is that matchup bad or or what? And you have to know You know, either you can start to introduce other pilots if maybe you're understanding the game too well or, you know, talk through the other side of things of like, oh, well, I know that that's your game plan. Do this instead. Make sure that you're altering your process and that the process with which you're coming to conclusions with is good because in my experience, usually inbreeding is a result of being very results oriented in your testing, taking a lot of stock in the things you can see. Instead of trying to put stock in the things that you can learn, it's hard to inbreed ideas of concepts that you've you've learned, but it's very easy to inbreed against very specific linear things and and things that are on paper. So that'd be that'd be my tip.
1: I have a a story about what you just said. It's pretty quick. When Team Oasis Games was first formed, we had like a required a certain number of playtesting hours from people. And part of that, you actually had to switch sides in a matchup. Like you would fill out a sheet, deposit the sheet into like an inbox. Then we would record the results and talk about like who was, and then you would write a summary of it. And it would just like who was on the play, who was on the draw, you know, like all of that stuff. But you wouldn't, you weren't allowed to just play one side. You had to play both, and then you as uh, the the people had to come up with like here's what we learned about this matchup. One thing that I will say about that is it turned back into a job and everybody hated it. So be careful too. But what Abe just said about, it's really important to take points from people who have a strong belief. Sam black does this a lot on his podcast where he like talks about, I'm more likely to believe somebody for why they're winning because they know why they're winning. And I think that we as magic players like to assume that for some reason we like to assume that other people are wrong and that we're right. When instead, we should just assume that we should just assume that both people are right.
0: Let's go on to our YouTube question Our YouTube question slash comment, which is another way to get something here on the show. You go to YouTube.com, comment on the most recent episode, and then uh, we pick one out and we put it on here from time to time. Uh, this one's from Dog 99 The episode was picking an RCQ deck. Dog says, so many modern references that were not really helpful to Pioneer players. I had no idea what any of those mean. And examples, I listened to it twice, but I was unable to really understand step zero. What do you need to observe in your local meta to help you inform an educated guest? So there's more to it, but I want to pause right there for a Mason note. Uh, that's on me, Trey Dogg. That is something that I should have done better in the episode. And I think while it's very helpful for people who play modern getting into Pioneer, I should have found ways to work that with you uh, for listeners like you. And Trey Dog, if you want, I'll gladly do a free coaching session with you. Just reach out and we can talk about this sort of stuff. There's more to it, but I just want to throw it in there. This episode assumes you even know how to read a local meta and adjust. As a newly minted Pioneer player who goes to FNM Weekly and aspiring to be a player to play in an RCQ, assuming they have one in my area, I found the idea thrown around to be good, but it was too far for my base knowledge to be implemented in. The steps to actually improving on the topic of a new player was too far off, was the TLDR there. And I think it's worth probably quickly going over the easiest way to start here, which is just go and play in an RCQ, see what people are playing, and then work from there. Because that is kind of the base player pool you have. Some players will have multiple decks, but lots of players own one, two, maybe three decks at most. That is the average Magic player for a format. And while Pioneer is a cheap format, people often don't love to get a whole bunch of decks. Some players do, but most don't. You look at that and you try to do what you can to adjust to what's going on as the most basic thing there. And Trade Dog, if you want to hit me up on that, feel free to reach out and I will gladly uh, go over that when I want with you. And I would love to actually have something like this be an episode in the future. And we're trying to work that into our schedule. We have our next eight episodes planned out, but the following eight, I would love to recover that kind of topic and go over it more in depth. Spencer, do you have any comments on this?
1: One of our goals in this show um, is to help players just like And so if we're not doing that, I know a lot of people are afraid to leave a comment like this. I'm personally, I'm really grateful. I think that that's the first thing that I would say. I think a lot of people would read this and think of it as a hate comment. To me, I read it as an opportunity to be always improving. And so the first thing I want to say is thank you. Um, The second thing I want to say is that I assumed that players listening to the show... Were mostly modern players. I think that it's the most popular format, and that was probably a silly assumption for how we directed the episode, and that we should have done something more archetypal uh, as a baseline than than modern stuff. And then, kind of the the next thing that I would say is that I really like what Mason said about playing an RCQ and, and taking notes, but I would also just say just play the whole thing. The first states tournament I ever went to. I went like one in five. I think it was the first competitive REL tournament that I ever went to. The next year, you know, I top eight states, uh, conceded to my opponent in the top four, and then the next year I won states. And I think that the staying all day and having that one five or whatever experience was actually really helpful. And. I would encourage you that if you are going to start going to RCQs and start going to competitive events, to really stay through the losses if you have them. If you crush them, I think that that also can happen. Like you could just show up and be like, "GGs, let's go." But like, if if that isn't what happens, and you're you're making the jump from F and M to RCQs, you know, stay for it. Revel in the moment of learning and losses, because it's a lot easier to learn from a loss than it is to learn from a win. I hope that's helpful. That's kind of the the basis. I know that we're talking about picking an RCQ deck in this episode, but I would say if you're trying to pick an RCQ deck for... And, and for what it's worth, one of the reasons we picked monitors because we looked at what the most popular formats were for RCQs. And one of the reasons we were talking about so much. But like, if your local event is sealed or... You're looking at pioneering or standard. Like, I I would say that picking something that you're going to have fun with should be the first answer at this point because I think you'll have confidence.
2: I'll say two things. One is that you should absolutely take Mason up on his offer for that coaching session. I think this is something where Mason will be able to help you a lot with clarifying, you know, where to start from. But you know, kind of, I also just. Want to second what Spencer said. Play an event, play more fnms play at your at your game stores, come connected within your local community, you know, meet the people who maybe are more experienced, know these things, can help you establish that level zero of like what even is the metagame, what do people play, know the people around you. And um I think that, you know, I think it's really great that you were able to identify that this was something you wanted to know about, but also that you didn't necessarily feel equipped to like integrate into what you're doing and you know that means you can just focus on getting to the point and come back which is better than trying to like force it into the way that you're doing things now when you don't fully understand it and the fact that that's the kind of process you're taking you left a comment like this that is honestly so great for us to be able to take as feedback and to to make sure we're just putting out the best podcast possible for people listening already suggests to me that i think that you're going to do fine. Just go out there, get your feet wet, play magic. You know, that's, you're at the best part of it when you're going from FNM to, to really discovering what's out there in organized play and playing tournaments. I think that's just like the best time. You learn so much so fast and uh, yeah, have a great time with it. That's what I'd say.
1: I agree. I'm like jealous. Oh my God, man. I <laughs> remember this. This is the best. <laughs>
0: that's going to it go for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to support us you can of course go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. You can also like, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's pretty important. Make sure to check out the rest of the network when you're doing that. There is both Common Knowledge, which is a all-popper podcast, and there's also Drafting Archetypes, a, a limited focus podcast with Sam Black, one of the greatest to ever do it. If someone wants to find you, Abe, they go. They can find me at twitter.com slash
2: more nothings. DMs are open for uh, people looking to get coaching in playing. Modern Hammer Time, always working on that deck. My favorite thing to be doing, and I love to help people succeed. It's recently seeing a resurgence, a lot of things going on. Feel free to contact me about that. Probably like the last month, I'll be able to really get sessions banged out as much as I want.
1: So, you
2: know, clock is ticking. Spencer, what about you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Spencer13H. And then you can find me in the Heasy Game Media Discord where I talk magic. I talk, we do a fantasy football league every year. Um, we'll be doing fantasy basketball next year. We talk about anime, all, all that kind of stuff, magic gathering. And then you can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash media where I am streaming a little bit more. I plan to maybe do one this week, um, as well as bringing back live shows possibly for the Nature Podcast is I will be doing that again soon. And yeah, that's the best place to find me.
0: You can find me over at twitter.com at Mason E Clark an underscore at the end. What I've learned from this weekend is that if you put Mason E. Clark, I pop up. So I'm just going to start saying Mason E. Clark again. That's where I'm at. I had some people follow me at the event because I said, they said, I used to follow you on Twitter. And then I said, you used to. That's right. What about now? And we had them pull it up and then follow me in person. I bigger I'm a better person. I got banned. We got to do what we got to do. You can also find me each and every week on this episode. You find me on Card Kingdom. This week I'm going to be writing about, I guess, the dream hack experience is what my editor wanted. So I'm going all in on the dream hack and the four color experience. And if you're looking for coaching, uh, I am available as well. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, my email. Someone actually did that to my Twitter bio as well. So you can find it there uh, and happy to do anything in modern or any format, really. But uh, a lot of people have messaged about four color. So if you're interested, happy to help. And that'll do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. So see y'all next week for another episode of CCMTG.